Welcome to the Life is Wondrous podcast. This is a brand new show for curious parents out there who want to explore pathways to greater potential, both within themselves and within their children. I couldn't be more excited to announce our very first guest on the show today. We have Indre Viscontes. Indre is a mother. She is a professor of sciences and humanities at San Francisco Conservatory of Music. She is an assistant professor of psychology at the University of San Francisco. She is the creative director of the Pasadena Opera. She is a neuroscientist. She is a published author. She is a TEDx speaker and she's here today. Get ready. Indre, thank you so much uh, for being a part of one of our very first episodes of the Life is Wondrous podcast. Um, our audiences have just heard me give a, a bit of a, an introduction for who you are and what you do. And I was just telling you earlier that, you know, I, the more I kind of looked into your work, the more I became intimidated about actually having a conversation with you. I was laughing with my wife this morning about how, how dumb I'm going to sound, basically. But um, I think that's, that's a good thing, right? We kind of spend time with people who are a little bit smarter than us and, you know, hopefully it pays off. Well, I don't think, I, you know, I don't think that's true. I'm just probably older than you. <laughs> <laughs> that's very, yeah, that's very nice of you to say. I appreciate that. Um, so whereabouts in the world are you at the moment? Tell me a little bit about kind of where you're at and, and what you're up to right now. Sure. So I live in San Francisco and that's where I've been sheltering in place since mid-March. Uh, I'm a professor at the University of San Francisco, so uh, that's you know one of the primary reasons I'm here. But I'm also on faculty at the Conservatory of Music here. Um, so I, San Francisco is a, a place that I chose to live in in part because there seems to be a lot more acceptance of people who have feet in the sciences and some other creative field. And not the science isn't creative, but um, you know like a performing arts or or other arts field. So, you know, I feel like it's a it's a place where I can do a lots of different projects that maybe would be less possible elsewhere. So that's where I am. Very cool. Very cool. And you actually said something uh, on the TED talk when I when I first stumbled across your work, you said something along those lines of, of art and I think it was art and science are, are kind of up, inevitably after the same thing they're both in pursuit of understanding the human existence is that right yeah that's kind of be become one of my <laughs> catchphrases where yeah, I think you know ultimately the, the goal is the same right to understand what it means to be human and our experience they just use very different toolboxes so in science we try to be very objective we try to find uh, rules about the world and about our place in it that apply to everyone um, where you know whereas in the arts the person is is a key part of the exploration of you know the pursuit of the goal so it's about subjective experience and what your subjective experience can can tell you and tell others about what it's like to be human so it's the same goal just different sets of tools and you know how, how does one come to become a, a scientist a neuroscientist and then a professional musician you know what was it? tell me a little bit about that kind of journey yeah, so I like to start by saying I'm a Libra, which means that I have, you know, these, this, these, these balancing or competing interests. And that's been true ever since I was, you know, a little kid, ever since I can remember. Uh, I always had a passion for music and especially vocal music. My mom's a choral conductor and she put me in choirs from the time I was, you know, tiny. 
And yet I also had this real interest in um, being right <laughs> and, you know, objective, <laughs> correct answers. I like being, I like, I like it when there's a solution and there's like that sense of satisfaction. And when I was in high school, I discovered the writings of Oliver Sacks. And like so many people, he really showed me how these two passions can actually be melded together because, you know, there is an art to understanding the human brain in particular. Uh, so, so that's how, you know, I've, and so then I've throughout the rest of my education and, and now career, it sort of vacillates. Um, so I first, after I finished high school, I got a bachelor's in science, uh, as with a specialist in psychology. And then when I graduated from that degree, I really just wanted to sing full time. So, um, you know, I, I moved to London because I just thought it was a great city to live in and, uh, you know, worked at the Royal Opera House six nights a week as an usher and was just immersed in opera. And then I realized, you know, anything I do in my 20s is going to require a significant amount of training and, uh, and poverty. So um, <laughs> I got a scholarship uh, to do a PhD in psychology and neuroscience um, at UCLA. And I thought, LA, like, lots of cool stuff's happening there. So I went and did the PhD, and after the PhD, I was like, oh, no, 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 I just need to sing. Uh, so then I went and got a master's in voice performance and music. And then since then, you know, I've kind of, I, I like to think of myself as, as, even though I have a full-time faculty position, the nice thing is, is that that's also, you know, nine months of the year, or sometimes, you know, depending on, on how your schedule goes, um, there, there are gaps in which you can do other projects. And so, so I... I in, in any given year, I will have a certain chunk of my time devoted to opera, whether that's as a performer or now as a director. I've been directing operas lately because that's something that I've found a real passion for and or, you know, talking about the neuroscience. So I feel like it's still, you know, they're, they're, I'm still balancing those two things. But amazingly, now I've found that the more I do one, the better I am at the other, if that it doesn't yeah. it doesn't make a ton of sense but like i just feel like yeah. there's this you know sense that you can you can become stuck in a rut if you spend too much time in one pursuit i'm yeah. sure everyone's feeling that now with the pandemic as things have been upended um yeah. you know especially in the u.s i mean we're just going to be on lockdown forever now because <laughs> um, wow. you know we just can't figure it out so yeah. you know, there's just like just been a lot of disruption, and this is a time I think of of uh, of great difficulty for an enormous amount of people, and also creativity. Um, so yeah, yeah. Do you do you feel like? Um, and I'm kind of just launching in, into a little bit of a tangent here, but I heard it said, and I, I actually don't know the truth of this. I don't know if you've heard it said. Someone told me that the Renaissance. You know, which obviously is a time where a lot of amazing art has kind of surfaced from, and a lot of the the, the art that we still praise and you know um, and and look at today has come from that period. Someone told me that that was a direct result from the plague in in Europe. That 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 there was kind of burst out of that. Have you heard that? I have, and you know, I'm not a historian, so I don't I can't speak to the truth of that. But it makes sense to me uh, at a time when there's so much disruption, so much death, that society is ready for rewriting. And so you know, a look towards a lighter time, a look towards enlightenment. You know, literally where, and and you know, I think that that there there was that 
that the pendulum swung in that direction and towards science. And so a lot of scientific discoveries were, were, were made subsequently too. And then it got pushed back again in the other direction as people started to think like, well, maybe there's more room for the arts and things aren't just, shouldn't just be so, um, you know, clear cut and objective. And so, you know, I think that that, you know, the the pendulum swings in those directions, but I, I really do think that um, we are on the cusp of change. I mean, this is one of the reasons, and again, I'm just armchair philosophizing here, um, why the racial injustice movement has caught mm. fire, finally, you know, after mm. so many years. I mean, it's not like more black people were killed by police this year than any other year, uh, but I think mm. that more people who normally would not have had the time or the inclination to pay attention, their lives have also been disrupted. And so yeah. there's this kind of, you know, finally uh, people are stepping up and, 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 you know, changing. So, yeah. yeah, I'm looking forward to what the arts are going to look like. You know, I think for opera, the coronavirus, the novel one, COVID-19 has been devastating because we're super spreaders. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's not going to be soon that it's mm-hmm. safe to make or enjoy live opera uh, again. And I think, you know, we've had to go through a period of mourning for a couple of months trying to figure out, like, how we're going to deal with the loss. But now I'm starting to see some real creativity happening. And uh, it's really exciting to see how, you know, people are stopping on their socially distant or physically distant walks to listen to someone play violin or sing an opera from their balcony. They're not doing that to listen to someone else's Spotify playlist. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like there's something really compelling about live music making in this moment, even if it's just for three people. Um, And so, yeah, so that suggests to me that the art form is alive and well, and also that we're going to find new ways of appreciating it and and connecting with it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think it's, it's it's exciting in that regard to see what what happens, and I think um, you know it's almost like it becomes more important at a time like now, you know. Yeah, and you know it's interesting because you know opera especially, but classical music in general has been accused of being elitist and inaccessible because of high ticket prices, because you know you need to have a, a lot of education to kind of get it and understand it, which I just don't think is true, um, but. You know, one of the studies that I just read actually today was uh, showing that in medical settings, like in hospitals, we know that music can have a uh, stress reduction, uh, you know, response or or, um, effect. And then it can, you know, actually help people feel better and get better and, you know, need fewer medications and, and, and so forth. So, you know, it has these like measurable effects. And it turns out that that's more true when you're for people who are uh, of low education and, you know, when it comes to classical music than people of higher education, which I think is really fascinating. It's people who normally are not exposed to this genre of music that seem to benefit from it the most. Now, that's not to say that it's only classical music that can help people feel, you know, better. Like I, I absolutely don't think that I think all, you know, music is very subjective and that, you know, music can have very different effects on different people. But, um, I just thought that was really an interesting thing where like the people that you would think of traditionally as being the least interested in classical music were the ones that benefited the most. That is quite interesting. I mean, I, I wonder if that has anything to do, probably not, <laughs> But, like, I wonder if it has anything to do with the fact that 
I mean, they, they don't have that um, that kind of mental understanding of it. So they, they don't even have the opportunity to kind of be overthinking or I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. Or, I think they just sit and listen and it's something new. And, you know, for a lot of people, it sounds beautiful. And and, uh, and they're not sitting there wondering, like, you know, whether this version is better than the version of their local symphony or, you know, whether someone's off key or, you know what I mean? Like they're yeah, not analyzing yeah. it. They are just letting it wash over them. Interesting. And so, uh, so you're you're a mother. Is that you're a mother as well? Yeah, I have two kids: uh, a six-year-old and a almost two-year-old. Amazing, amazing. So I kind of feel like going back to everything that you kind of said you did and where you're at today, and the fact that you're a mother as well. I kind of feel like you have to be at least 126 years old. Is that? Sort of- I pretty. Yes, I feel that way uh, <laughs> after three months of homeschooling. <laughs> um, yeah. Now, what, what, what? What could I ask you this? So, so what? What? Um, how has you know been becoming a mom? How has that kind of influenced your view, I suppose, or or even pursuit of of kind of you know music in the mind or the, the mind, you know the let's talk specifically about what you were just referring to, which is, you know, can music heal? And if so, how? And how does that work? And and maybe specifically, like, you know, as a mom, you know, if you could speak into that as well. Yeah, I mean, I'll just say, like, becoming a, a mother made me way more productive because all of a sudden I didn't have time for anything other than things that either were really joyful or lucrative or somehow, you know, important because, you know, as, as every parent knows, like there just, there's just, there just aren't enough hours in the day to futz about. So, um, so I found that I really had to focus in on things that either I felt really passionate about and, uh, turns out that, you know, the effect that music has on us really was there, um, or things that I was really good at. And so, Whereas before, I think I I had been more, you know, I'd I'd been more willing to take different, you know, like church gigs and wedding gigs. And, you know, I I was rehearsing and performing um, a lot and, you know, just doing projects that weren't necessarily of the, you know, just the most true to who I wanted to be as an artist. When I, you know, once I become a mom, it's like I didn't have time for that. So instead, I started to see also just the effect that that kind of mindset had on me and on my own art form. And I realized like how much time I had wasted previously, like just in terms of how I practice, um, you know, the artistic choices I made and and so forth. So it made me a much better performer, I felt, uh, even though I had less time to practice because I made that practice time really efficient. And also I really felt like I had something to say. And, um, and, and so that, that, I think that was sort of what led me down this, this area of trying to figure out like how can how can music really be a part of people's lives in an everyday way because the other thing that i realized too is that um you know making music with someone else especially with a child has so many benefits um you know when i was researching my book i found that in fact you know when mothers sing lullabies to their babies or any caregiver sings lullabies to their babies, it has an effect on them, on the caregiver too. It actually, you know, decreases their stress. It helps them fall asleep. Um, I mean, there are wonderful studies of, you know, people who sing to babies in the neonatal ICU units and those babies eat better, more quickly, gain weight more quickly, are able to leave more quickly. I mean, there's just, it's like, 
And it's not just because of the child. I think it's also because the people around them are less stressed and it's just a calming, it's a way of, um, of, uh, kind of going through and working through your own emotions you know there's a huge change to become a parent for the first time there's a huge sense of loss that I think nobody talks about enough um like loss of who you were before of your independence of like you know being able to sleep in a without worrying what's happening to this other person right like that totally goes away and and so I think music actually allows you to to kind of work through that um so yeah so I would say from that perspective it really opened my eyes to the sort of just power of music it gave me the time to, you know, pursue it because I wasn't doing all these other things that maybe weren't as, weren't as good a use of my time. And then um, two years ago, I actually wrote a white paper um, on the benefits of music uh, in public schools in particular. But um, the the basically the conclusion of the white paper, and it actually should be released very soon, um, were, were that it benefits primarily kids who come from underprivileged backgrounds who, you know, who often are truant, who don't go to school and they benefit the most because music brings them into school. (laughs) They actually want to go when it's band class. Um, And, and so, you know, that, that made me see too, just the, the, the role that music plays in kids' lives especially when those kids kids lives are, are harder you know and that that music can can then be incredibly important even though we think of it as a luxury and it's usually the first thing that gets cut when a school system doesn't have money but it, it should be the opposite I mean it should be like now that everyone's dealing with the coronavirus we should be increasing the number of music teachers because they're gonna get kids you know back in school and they're gonna you know create joy and and help kids learn and just you know, really be- you, can, you have the beauty of looking at it through these two lenses which is which is amazing you know the artistic the kind of that 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 simplistic if you would you know view of kind of just listening as an observer and, and having joy or creating but also understanding or having you know a much better understanding of what the physical ramifications of that is doing you know inside our inside our minds inside our bodies so do you mind kind of speaking into that a little bit in terms of I mean, yeah, I'm sure that you have a much, much better, you know, idea of this than I do, but in all the, the looking around and snooping around that I have done, there's, there's so many different trades of thought and it, and it feels like there's, it's still kind of a grey area, but what have you learned in terms of what the physical ramifications are on our actual mind when we listen to music and, and is it just certain types of music or, you know, w- what is it? So... It's very heterogeneous because we use music in many different ways and each different way that we use music will have a different you know, effect on the brain and the body. But I will say that, um, and I will say that making music, actually playing music uh, is gonna have a much bigger effect than just listening to music for the most part. Um, so, and, and, um, and, and making music just involves so many different brain systems and circuits that normally don't get coordinated, that don't get used in that same way, um, that it can really stretch, uh, you know, a person's even down to the point of their neuroanatomy. Like it can actually, you know, shape the way, you know, you can have bigger brain volumes, um, in, you know, kids who take music lessons after a certain amount of time. Um, but, you know, but. You know, it's it's not that takes years, by the way. It's not like you can take you know three guitar lessons and your brain will grow bigger. But um, <laughs> uh, 
Um, darn it, darn it. Uh, yeah, um, and you know, and music is is hard. It's effortful, and anything that is going to change your brain is is going to require some pretty significant effort. Especially as we get older, um, with kids, they can be more passive and uh, they don't have to try as hard. Although, when you think about like, I don't know if you've had this experience, but like, it's really hard to be a kid. I'd forgotten how much angst there is in a day. Yeah. You know, like. It's hard. <laughs> it's, yeah. Um, so so they, they are putting in their, their effort in their own way. But, you know, there, there are many different ways in which we use music. I think of it as a tool. Um, so, you know, some people think like, oh, did the brain evolve for music or for language? Um, and I think that, you know, the, the truth is, is that it's probably, you know, it's both. Right. But um, but that we now use music as a tool the way we would use, you know, fire to help us cook food so that we have more time to read the newspaper, right? We don't have to spend our whole day foraging for food. We can cook the food that we get, we can put it in a freezer, and now we have all this time. Um, music is, is it can be used as a tool in a similar way where, you know, it can help you learn the alphabet. I don't know, like, of any kid who doesn't learn the alphabet with a song, right? Um, uh, it can help you uh, get the energy that you need to go and work out. It can, you know, it can help you in all these different ways. And each of these different uses of music, um, again, will involve different brain circuitry. Um, so, I mean, I could go on and on and on forever. I could talk about this for hours. So, you know. Please it, do. <laughs> I mean, I'll just give you a couple of examples. Um you know, I, I like to think of uh, the use of music to help us feel connected with one another. And this, this music music does this in a couple of different ways. Um, one way that it does it is it helps us sync up our body and brain rhythms. Uh, so one of the ways in which we can feel connected is if we feel like we are literally in sync, if we are breathing at the same rate, if our hearts are beating at the same rate, you know, if we're, if we're um, you know, just kind of we feel in sync and music can do that because what you do is you sync up to the music and then if everyone's synced up to the same music i mean this is why you know dance parties are so much fun because you feel like everybody in the room is engaged in this in this same activity and we can see it we can physically see it we can feel it um and so forth so what happens when we when our body rhythms become in sync uh is that we feel this this sense of of connection we also see higher levels of a, of a hormone and neurotransmitter called oxytocin, um, which is sometimes called the love hormone or the attachment hormone. Um, it's called that because it is in, in, in moments of bonding, whether it's, you know, after an orgasm during sex or when a mother is nursing her baby in these, these moments of intense bonding, those levels are high. And we see that music can raise levels of oxytocin. And one of my favorite studies is one where they actually had people like, you know, use a nasal spray to spray oxytocin into their brain. And when they did that, they were better dancers. Um, they were more in sync with the rhythm. So it's like this, That's great. you know, it's this, it's somehow oxytocin and, you know, rhythm, like it helps us become wow. more in sync with one another. And then we even see it in the brain waves. Um, so, you know, you, I, I like to say that you can literally, when you're listening intently to someone perform a piece of music, your brain is mimicking what their brain is doing. I mean, we see that in terms of where the brain is activated. We see it in terms of how the activations fluctuate with the tempo and like the intensity of the music. Um, so, so you really are, you know, putting yourself in the performer's shoes um, and that helps you understand them better and, and help you feel connected. 
So, you know, there's that that's the whole connection side of music. Then there's the whole like motivation side of music, which is tied to another neurotransmitter called dopamine, which is really involved in um, shaping our behavior by motivating us. So, you know, like, for example, drugs of addiction often act on the system like cocaine mimics dopamine and people seek it out because it makes them feel good and things that make us feel good, we tend to repeat. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's the, the, the role that dopamine plays. And, and again, we see when you're enjoying a piece of music, especially when you get the chills, you know, which is like the goosebump feeling, the shivers, whatever, we see big, you know, spikes in dopamine in these parts of the brain that are involved in motivation and reward. Um, and so, you know, like one of my other favorite stories is one of people with Parkinson's disease. Like, so what's happening in Parkinson's disease is that the part of the brain that makes dopamine, the cells that make dopamine is atrophied, they're dying. And by the time people show symptoms, you've lost like 80% of those cells. Um, so, you know, the first line of treatment is a drug that, you know, is a precursor for dopamine. So you can boost levels that way. Um, but music really helps too in, in two ways. One, it boosts their dopamine levels. So whatever dopamine they have left are, is boosted. Um, and it also acts in the part of the brain that is involved in um, initiating movement and keeping you going. So one of the primary symptoms of Parkinson's disease, a lot of people think of it as, you know, a tremor. Um, but in fact, some patients don't have tremor and they, it's not usually not the presenting symptom. The first symptom is often an inability to get going, like sitting, standing up out of a chair or, you know, and, you know, moving a foot in front of the other, like people just think like, I, you know, I just I can't get going. Well, music can help people get going because essentially it gives them a beat to entrain to, and it actually affects the parts of the brain that are really involved in Parkinson's disease. So you know, there's some really cool interventions where like there's this one um, neurologist in I think Alberta in Canada that devised this like really simple app where you, you put it, it uses the accelerometer in like an iPhone and you put it on your leg and as you're walking music plays and as long as you keep your strides a certain length, the music will continue playing and so you're motivated to keep the music going, but mm -hmm. the music is also giving you a beat to kind of entrain to. Um, and so it's really effective in helping, like, there's this one video that I saw this woman who had real trouble getting on to a moving escalator. Is that what you call them also in yeah, Australia? Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so like, you know, you can imagine for a person who has trouble getting going that like getting onto an escalator is an impossible task, right? Cause you have mm -hmm. to coordinate mm -hmm. your movement with this moving thing. Well, she puts the music on and with a little bit of hesitation, but you know, she can step right onto that escalator, which like opens up so much more of the world to her. So yeah, so I think there's really profound ways that, you know, music can affect us. And I don't remember what the question was. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I think you answered that and several others. So, you know, well done to you. Um, <laughs> let, let me ask you this. Um, when we talk about music, I guess, as a therapy, and specifically in young children, like, how 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 is it therapeutic? You know, I've heard about <clears throat> different elements and you know alpha waves and and different things like what what is actually happening there and what is the science kind of showing us behind you know can music be therapeutic for for our children yeah i mean there's there's there are some great examples and again it can it can happen in in many different contexts so depending on the child and depending on on the child's issues 
um, you know, just as you described alpha waves. So certainly we do see that because the brain waves tend to entrain to a beat, as long as the music is compelling, like you can't just play sounds to a beat. I mean, you, you can with this like ADS thing, but you wouldn't do that to a child. It's like, you know, really disorienting, right? But like, so, a, you know, a child's brain, it can slow down or ramp up depending on the beat of the music. So that can have a kind of small effect uh, in terms of their ability to concentrate. It's not going to calm someone, you know, who's just really having sensory overload or, you know, some other kinds of issues. Um, I think it also, because kids like it, and because it can help them feel connected with their teachers, um, it can it can help them do things that are that otherwise would be really hard. So what I'm thinking of is is um, there's this great video, this example of this this uh, music therapist who's working with a child with uh, developmental disabilities. Uh, in this case, I believe it's Down syndrome, and um, she's trying to teach her to apologize. Now, I mean, you, you've got kids, you've got a five-year-old, I've got a six-year-old, like saying I'm sorry is like probably the hardest thing for them to do. Like they just, it's really hard for my son. Like it's something that is just really hard, you know, and, you know, to say you're sorry means, you know, it's a, it's a lot of different things that are put into that, right? It's about admitting you were wrong. It's, you know, all this other stuff. So anyway, but in this uh, little video, you can watch this music therapist work with this little girl using music to say the words I'm sorry over and over and over again in a playful way but eventually it kind of starts to sink in and the little girl genuinely apologizes um she had she said you know she said a bad word in music class <laughs> so um you know that's what she was apologizing for but it was you know it's just so I, I feel like music can disarm and and you know can give teachers a tool to connect with their students um, because ultimately, you know, students want to feel like the teachers care about them. And, you know, if the teacher doesn't care about the student, the student is going to have a harder time learning. And music is a way for a teacher to show a child that they care, um, right? It can be, it can have this bonding effect. So that's, that's the kind of way that social emotional learning can happen. I mean, there's also lovely research showing that babies that, you know, go to these participatory music classes where like, you know, they're, they're, or they're being bounced in sync to the music and there's all this stuff going on. They actually um, learn to read and uh, communicate using gestures more quickly uh, than kids that are not involved in, in these kinds of classes. So I feel yeah. like it's a way for them, again, to, to, to learn, to be engaged, um, et cetera. And then there's, of course... Can, 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 I, can yeah. I butt in there just quickly? Yeah. Why do you think that is? Is that... Is that is that entrainment? Is that like muscle memory or is like, is there something deeper at play there? How, you know, they could literally be a part of these activities and, and, and have this experience with music and then become better learners. Like why, why is that? Do you think? Well, I, I mean, I think it's a little bit like communication training on steroids, right? Because if you think about like, what does a baby understand when they're a year old? probably not the words you're saying. What they understand is the tone you're saying those words in, right? Yeah. So in a sense, they're paying attention to the prosody, the melody of the speech and the rhythm. Are you saying it quickly? Are you saying it loudly? Are you saying it quietly or, and slowly? Like that's what the child 
is is very good at discerning, but they don't they can't tell what the actual words are. Um, so if you think about what music class does, is it is it essentially ramps all of that up, especially when it comes to emotions. So usually a lot of the songs that we teach our children are about processing emotions. You know, if you're happy and you know, I clap your hands, right? <laughs> so or like all these other things. So I think that the the babies start to learn much more quickly what these emotion faces, like what the facial expression and the gesture and the, you know, the, the tone, all of that, what that means. Um, and so then they can apply that in other settings. Um, and also I think it encourages them to play with their bodies, um, to, to do movements and, and facial expressions and everything they, that they maybe wouldn't have before. It's also very rewarding. You know, it's, they see, you know, smiling parents or caregivers and and you know everything other other kids they feel connected so you know i think that that's one of the reasons why you know music in that age is so effective yeah do, do you i mean there's a little bit of a tangent but do, do you recommend and do, i mean i'll be curious if you did it personally but do you recommend parents play you know their children music at bedtime or you know and if so what type of music like what, what are the kind of studies on that yeah, I mean, I would say singing at bedtime is is really effective at getting kids to wind down. I think playing music at other times, you know, I think music should be played and, and a variety of genres that the kids should get exposed to, especially before age three. So we know that there's a kind of critical period before or uh, age three where a lot of their you know, their auditory system is is being developed. And so your relationship with noise is, is really important in terms of how you're laying down those structures for the rest of your life. One thing that I am particularly concerned about um, is the increased use of white noise machines uh, in, in early uh, kids. And I know sleep is incredibly important and, you know, and all of that, but I, we have refused to play white noise machines for either of our two kids. Um, because I really think that that t t teaches them to tune out noise. Um, and, and I, you know, I think that there's some evidence that kids who grow up in noisy environments have trouble with later language development. And I just don't know that those white machines really are that innocuous. Um, I mean, we certainly know that when you play white noise for hours on end to baby rats, their nervous systems don't develop properly. And I'm not saying that that's going to be the same, you know, in these lower decibel things, but, you know, so, so I think that, you know, the environment that the child is finding themselves early on, if they, if they live in an environment where, um, noise is an important signal, like for example, the family's going to gather around and listening, listen to music and that's rewarding. Um, then that child's brain is going to develop to be attuned to sound if, or if they grow up in an environment where the TV is always on in the background and they have to tune that out, you know, their, their brain is going to develop differently. So, so I think it's important to not just have random noise, uh, on all the time. I think it's important to have mindful music choices, a variety of them. Um, and, and, and times when, you know, it's not distracting to the child so they don't just start tuning it out. I also think it's really important, especially early on to take kids to see live music. I mean, not in the age of COVID-19, obviously, but you know, in that case, I feel like then it, you know, it really shows them how powerful uh, it is and, and helps them, you know, kind of develop a love for it. But yeah, I mean, other than that, I would say, you know, right, right now, even though we're all quarantined, um, I don't know, maybe it's already lifted in Australia. You guys are doing a much better job than we are. But um, 
but I'm I'm like basically paying for my kid to do these online Zoom uh, music classes because I see how much it benefits her. I mean, it's certainly not the same as being, you know, but having a little bit of that interaction and also having that dedicated time, like, you know, if I've paid for something, then I'll make sure that it happens. <laughs> so, you yeah. know, she has that dedicated time. We have a couple instruments that she plays and stuff. And, uh, and I, you know, I think it's really important. And I, you know, it's, it's more important to me for her to have that experience than to limit her screen time and not give that to her. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I mean, let me let me ask this question, which I know this is this is a kind of a broad question and maybe an un- unanswerable one. But what what like in its simplest, most simplest form, you know, what what is music? What 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 even what is it? You know, because it's you know, I'm a musician. My, I come from a family of musicians. I've probably underestimated it, and I think you know, you speak. You've you've used the word tool a lot in this conversation. I quite like that in terms of just really identifying. Um, that it is a tool, that it is actually constructive, you know, that it is a kind of, it's like a doing, it's a doing thing, you know, and uh, having that awareness is quite powerful, I think, because when you realise that it's a tool in your arsenal, I think you're going to look at it a different way. It's not, yes, we get joy from it, and yes, we can, you know, we know we can listen to it, and we, we find joy, and, you know, it brings out emotions, and, but actually when you look at it as a tool, I think that that suddenly empowers you to think differently and act a little bit more strategically. And especially as a parent, I think it, it allows that. Um, but what, you know, what, what is music? You know, what is this universal kind of language? What is, what is it? Yeah. I mean, I think that's in in some ways an unanswerable question, um, except for every individual, you know, we, when I, I have this uh, with my students at the conservatory, we go through this exercise of, of defining it in the first class, you know, and usually they come up with some, uh, version of it's organized sound with the intent to communicate an emotion or an idea. Um, that's not what music is, right? I know. Then I, I play them this uh, this illusion by music cognition pioneer Diana Deutsch, um, where essentially she repeats a phrase over and over and over again, and by the end of the number of repetitions, it sounds like she's singing. And then I play the whole phrase again, and I say, you know, your brains have forever changed because you will never be able to hear this phrase without thinking of her singing again. Um, and so that's music. It's not, you know, it's just repeated, you know, but what basically what I think music is, and I, again, it's, it's really hard to define, but what I think it is, it's um, a different relationship with sound. So when we talk about language, we use language to be specific, to say something particular. Um, when it comes to music, it has more than one interpretation. It has multiple layers of meaning. Um, and I think that that's the difference. Um, you know, unless you're really talking about poetry, which you could argue is a type of music, I guess. Um, really, you know, language is about expressing a thought or, or, you know, communicating an idea. But music is has other purposes, has other things to do it. It's it's a it's a way of making you feel, but it's also got these other layers. So so I think that's what what's different. And I think that when you have the reason that a repeated phrase or sound becomes music in our brains is because our brains are looking for new patterns and they will find patterns even if the patterns weren't intentionally put there um, like pareidolia right where you see you know like a a famous face on a piece of toast right um mm. so like you see something in the clouds you see a face in the clouds exactly or in a rock a cliff or or, or what have you um 
And oftentimes what we see are human beings, right? Like you see the man on the moon, you see the, you know, person in the, in the cliff or an animal. Um, and that is because we're really interested in, in living things, especially other human beings. And so I think we do the same thing with music. It's like you learn something new about another human and their, what they're doing in the world by listening to the parts of the music that go beyond just the superficial speech or the superficial sound, right? That's how like even a sound, like the opening of a can of soda, um, you know, has a particular sound, which we ignore if we hear it a lot of times, but if it becomes kind of mindful and you kind of listen to it carefully, it like has all these other meanings attached to it and layers attached to it. And then it becomes music. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the, one of the words that you use there, um, is, is repetition. And I'm quite interested in that. Like, cause one of the things that I want to be kind of delving into a little bit deeper on, on this podcast is kind of positive psychology and the, the power of, you know, just that idea that we have the ability to sort of regulate, control our own thoughts. And obviously when we control our thoughts, we, we ultimately control our reality a lot of the time. That's kind of, you know, that's the journey that I'm on. And, you know, I think there's a lot of evidence for that, but I'm curious on your take on the whole repetition aspect of, of it, you know, of music and even in correlation to what I just said, like why is repetition, you know, su such an important aspect? Well, I would say, you know, repetition is, is the one universal thing that we see in virtually all music across cultures and, you know, centuries and so forth, except for the type of music that explicitly avoids it. Like uh, some people call it like 20th century composed music or art music. It's like, and, and anyone who has spent time at one of those concerts knows how difficult it is to listen to. Right. And it's like, you know, it becomes really niche and um, I don't want to knock it down because, you know, it is, it has its place and it's, you know, incredibly intellectual and, 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 you know, important in terms of what it represents. But it's hard to listen to. And for a lot of people, it doesn't sound like music because there isn't repetition. And the reason that I think that repetition has such an important role in music um, is because it sets the pattern. And um, when we think about it, you know, if I had to say what the point of the brain is, I would say the point of the brain is to predict the future so that you can shape your behavior accordingly. And how do you predict the future? You see what patterns are repeating. So no matter what we're doing, whether it's, you know, looking at a, a, a you know, a, a some, some piece of art or what have you, you know, we'd look for patterns um, if we're listening to music, even if we are hearing a story, right? We kind of want to know the ending and we know that there are certain patterns uh, in which stories go. Now we also like learning new things. So a movie where it's so predictable that you know what's gonna happen is boring. And that's the same for music, right? You know, probably by now, maybe not your five-year-old, but you probably don't like the wheels on the bus, right? Cause you know how it's gonna keep going. Or Baby Shark is another good example, right? But like our kids love it. Cause they're like, oh, I see the pattern and you know, I, I can yeah. predict it and it's it's fun and exciting. So I think that's, that's why repetition um, it, it, and, and repetition is, is represented in music at so many different levels. Like it's got all these different hierarchies. It could just be a note is being repeated. It could be a phrase is being repeated, you know, in the sonata form, it's an entire section that's repeated, but it's repeated with variation, right? So there's like a sense that there's something predictable. I see the pattern and yet I'm learning something new anyway. And I think that that's when we really love music the most is especially like, you know, a lot of these genres that involve improvisation or, you know, kind of, you know, riffing on things like we like jazz, for example, 
you know, you, you want to be able, in order to appreciate a piece of jazz, you need to know what the melody is so that you can understand what the, per, how the person is varying it. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that that's, that's one of the reasons, you know, another, another reason is that familiarity breeds preference. So, um, if you don't like a piece of music on the first listen, listen to it five times. And then if you still don't like it, maybe it's not for you, <laughs> but you know, yeah, that's interesting. Hey, I mean, what, what does that mean? Cause I find that, I find that like, I'll listen to, it's like when you, you know, a band you like brings out a new album <clears throat> and, and you kind of like you, the first go through, you're like, eh, I don't think I like it as much. And then, you know, by the fifth you, you're loving it. Like what, why is that? What happens there? Well, I think your brain starts to know what to listen for and it stops paying attention to the, just the superficial aspects. I think the first time you listen, it almost treats it like speech. Like what, okay, what are the important things that I need to learn? And that can be exhausting and not that satisfying and not that fun. But on the fifth listen, your brain now is, is not worrying about the superficial aspects. It's allowing, you know, the, the real meaning to flow through and then like you know a really great album again will be one that on the hundredth listen you're still hearing something new even though the patterns are familiar um and so yeah does that mean does that is that kind of talking about that you know you're kind of taking away that analytical mind a little bit and 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 as you do that you find more enjoyment out of it yeah and in fact that's what we see in the minds of people who are listening right like so Usually if you're listening intently and you're really analyzing, you've got lots of prefrontal cortex activation. Um, but when you're really enjoying music um, and you're not in that mode, you see a lot of back of the brain activation where your senses are taking over and you're not ruminating. I mean, you know, it's like the truth is, is that most of us spend a lot of time ruminating about things that make us sad. <laughs> Like it's really, you know, but like if you let your, that's why meditation works. That's why, you know, mindfulness, like, you know, tapping into your senses, you know, it frees up your, your prefrontal cortex to just quiet down for a bit and not worry about the world so much. And instead just like, you know, listen and experience to, to, to what the back of your brain is, is getting. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's one of the reasons. That's cool. I can see, I think, is it uh, uh, your little boy run past the window? <laughs> yeah, <then? laughs> just coming back from the park. <laughs> That's great. It looks like the sun's shining in San Francisco. Yeah, today's a nice day. It's uh, usually in, uh, in June and July and August, we have really terrible weather. But today it's actually quite nice because the fog it, it hangs over the city. The warmer it is inland, the cooler it is in San Francisco. So, Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Well, I feel like... Um, I'm mindful of your time, but I, I want to, you know, you, you released this book, which is, you know, how, how music can make us better, how music makes us better. And, you know, can you speak into that a little bit? You know, and specifically from a point of, a, say, a parent with, you know, small children our age, like how does music make them better? And I know we've kind of touched on that, but feel free to kind of just go, go there and expand on it or however you want to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think music has so many roles that can play in a family. Um, there's actually some really nice uh, data coming out that uh, in the beginning, in those in that first formative time, you know, we spend a lot of time listening to music with our kids, and then when they become teenagers, we tend to have different musical tastes, and we tend not to listen to music, uh, you know, together. And yet families that do actually tend to have fewer conflicts with their adolescent children and feel more connected, which is kind of interesting, and it can have that effect even in the teenage world. And it's not that like you need to actually play family band, um, just listening to music that you both find compelling seems to have a, you know, have a, have a bonding effect. But in the middle age, um, you know, between 
say, you know, kindergarten and, and uh, eighth grade or, or even later, you know, I think music can have a, a lot of different roles that it can play. Um, one, it can just lighten the mood in the house, right? When we're stressed, when we're feeling tired, when, you know, it's yet another conflict. Putting on music can help dissipate a lot of negative emotions and just make us feel better. It can help uh, entertain kids while you're trying to get dinner on the table. Um, you know, it just, you know, just lifts the whole mood of the of the uh, family. And then, you know, if kids decide that they want to play a musical instrument or get serious about taking voice lessons, it can have profound effects on their self-confidence. It's really great at developing a growth mindset, which is this notion that, you know, your abilities are not fixed, um, but rather that, you know, the more effort you put into something, the, the, the better you get at it. Music can show that very tangibly, right? Like it takes a lot of effort and yet, you know, you, you can eventually you can do things that you never thought possible. And, you know, there's this great quote by uh, Bill Clinton where he basically has said that if it wasn't for music, he wouldn't be president because he, he could not have seen how such an impossible feat would become possible. But, you know, when you're first learning to play the piano or in his case, the saxophone, and then you become really good at it, like you can see just every day putting it in a little bit of effort um, can have a huge effect. You know, I also think the right type of training can help a child learn to learn. Uh, and they realize that, you know, the, the way towards learning is by focusing on the things that you're not good at, not just doing the things that you're good at over and over and over again. You know, that mistakes are a part of learning. Uh, you know, everybody sounds bad when they first pick up a violin. Um, but, you know, that's 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 part of, of, of the learning process. You know, it can give them, uh, so it can give them self-confidence. It can give them um, a sense of community if they're playing in a band. Um, the fact that they have to show up even if they don't want to uh, because their bandmates need them. Uh, and then when you finally come together and have that performance, it can force them you know, to perform in front of people, uh, which also a lot of kids don't naturally gravitate towards doing. Um, and so music gives them a way to, you know, a lot of kids find public speaking very, very difficult. But if they've been practicing their instrument, you know, they can go up on stage and do things that they wouldn't have been able to do before. So, you know, I think in that way, it can have so many um, effects. And because it's intrinsically rewarding, uh, you know, I think that, that that's one of the reasons why you know, kids, it can be so powerful. Um, so yeah, so I think that, you know, it has a lot of these benefits. And, you know, if you want to talk about like the, you know, IQ tests and everything, like it does seem that after, you know, three or more years of, um, uh, you know, private lessons or, or, you know, intensive musical training, we do see gains in even things like um, verbal reasoning or, or mathematics and so forth. It's unclear to what extent that's a function of a family's socioeconomic status, because of course, you know, if you have the time and the money to keep paying for lessons, like, you know, you're already ahead. But, you know, some of these studies are showing that music does seem to have, um, you know, a, a, a benefit in that way compared to other activities. And, and but again, there's there's good music teachers and there's bad music teachers, just like there's good coaches and there's bad coaches, right? Like if someone's in a really great sports, you know, uh, uh, club and they have really good coaching, they can have some of these same benefits. Um, but I think in, when it comes to music, there, 
you know, it, it, I think it's harder to make a living as a music teacher if you're not a good one. <laughs> I think maybe there's more place for uh, sports coaches that, you know, can kind of get by. And I mean, not, not to say there aren't abusive teachers. There are. But um, I just, you know, I just think that there's also this kind of one-to-one component that happens, especially when you're learning a musical instrument. So anyway, those are all ways that I think that music can really benefit. And I will say that, you know, I think that there, uh, there has to be a... Um, a balance between getting a child to power through those first few lessons where they're just like, I don't want to do this. And, you know, and, and a good teacher is really key. A good teacher will want, the child will want to spend time with the teacher and will want to do the things that the teacher asks. Um, a bad teacher who's a disciplinarian, you know, that can even engender more of a fixed mindset, you know, if they mm-hmm. sort of say, oh, you're not talented or, or whatever. Like, I think that there is, especially in classical music training, there's a big risk of the wrong teacher can really actually be be bad for a child because it's more, more damage. Yeah, more damage. Um, but a good teacher can can really be, you know, really fundamentally change the, the child's relationship, you know, with themselves and with learning. Let's talk a little bit about, because you used the word before, neuroplasticity, and that's a word that, you know, I, I've kind of done a little bit of reading around in the last few years, and that concept is very interesting to me, and, you know, because there's a lot of stuff out there around neuroplasticity, and, and I've heard it said, and, and I, you know, maybe you can shed some light on this in terms of, oh, you know, we used to think that, you know, that the brain was kind of malleable for, for X amount of years, and then it stopped, and, you know, what how does that specifically relate to kind of what you're talking about right now like the idea that you know the bl- the brain it can can be changed like physically like literally and physically you know what i mean yeah i mean it's really interesting i feel like one of the great disservices has been um the computer metaphor as a metaphor for the brain because a computer has a certain amount of hardware and the hardware doesn't change and so it's been a, really hard for us to figure out and and to kind of imagine how an adult brain with all its hardware intact can still change and the truth is, is that there are biological limitations. I mean, you don't want a brain to be completely changing all the time, just like your skin cells turn over. But who cares if it's this skin cell or that skin cell? You're not going to forget your grandmother, you know, if you pull off a hangnail, right? But like, if you, you know, if you get rid of your, your, your brain is what stores your experiences. So you don't want to be constantly turning it over. You don't want it to be, um, you know, infinitely plastic or malleable. Um, and so there are these critical periods um, in childhood and, and early adulthood up until about age, oh, I don't know, like early 20s, where finally the brain um, is fully myelinated, which means that it has, um, you know, all the, the, the connections between, say, the front of the brain and the back of the brain and elsewhere um, have become optimized. But ultimately experience learning what we're able to do is you know stored in the way that these different cells are communicating with each other and and how they're active and what we see neuroplasticity happens at a number of different levels right at the level of you know individual cells we see synaptogenesis so we see more or fewer connections being made between different neurons um you know there's some debate as to whether we grow new neurons in the adult brain probably we grow them in two parts of the brain that are involved in new learning. Um, but most of the changes that happen are in terms of how we uh, allot cortical real estate, right? So you have now this brain and how you use it determines how much of which parts of the brain are you know, associated with that particular skill. 
So even in adulthood, what we see is that the more you practice, the more um, of your brain matter is kind of devoted to the skill that you're trying to do. One of the reasons it's harder as we get older uh, is because the kind of the, the neurotransmitters, the hormones and everything that is involved in neural growth and repair um, are less active and you want them to be less active because you want to, you know, continue to maintain that, that um, information. So it's harder to learn a new skill as you get older because your brain isn't quite as open uh, and, but it's not impossible. And, and what I like to say is that as you get older, one of the benefits that you have is that you have a lot of motivation, if that's what it is that you want to do compared to, mm. you know, a 12 year old who maybe isn't that motivated to learn an instrument. Um, and you also have um, a, a, a better ability to detect whether what you're doing is effective, right? And so I think the, the key thing about deliberate practice, which is really what gets you to learn a new skill, is that you have immediate feedback about whether what you're doing is actually helping you get better, right? And I think as a child, like you just, you have to rely on your coaches. So, you know, I think people that get stuck, people who, you know, when they're older, especially are having trouble, you know, learning a new skill, a lot of it has to do with the fact that they're not just not practicing with the best, um, you know, with the best features of practice. Um, and, you know, I, yeah, so, so, you know, there's, there's that side of it. Um, I also think that, of course, there are going to be limitations. I mean, if you're, you know, 50 years old and you want to become a professional basketball player, like you're just not going to be able to run as fast or jump as high as other mm. people. So, you know, when it comes to learning a musical instrument, you're, you know, your processing speed is not going to be as fast, right? You're not going to be as, you know, but that doesn't mean that, I mean, if that's, that's not all music is, right? Yeah. It's not just technical prowess. So, yeah. So, so that's why I think that, you know, we see, and, and if you think about it, like the way you're using your brain, then that's, that's the superpower of the brain is that it's really adaptable and flexible in the sense that how you use it determines how you're going to be able to use it. Um, and yeah. you know, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And you, you, you talked about, you know, kind of, you may not be able to become a professional basketballer and it, and it kind of reminded me of something, an area that I'm quite interested in, which is, kind of this area of, of visualization. And, you know, I'd like to ask you, you know, what the science behind that is, because, you know, I've heard all kinds of stories about, you know, people visualizing things on repetition over and over again, and then being able to achieve those small tasks or whatever it is. Um, and I also have a, quite an interest at the moment just in imagination. Like, I feel like imagination is something that, and I don't know if you would say this is linked to visualization, but I feel like, imagination is something that we often um, maybe overlook, I think, uh, just as people, like the power of, of our imagination, you know? Like, would you speak into those kind of couple of areas and in terms of just some of the learnings and the, and the significance behind those for us as, as people and also as our children, on our, on our children, children, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I think is really interesting is that we tend to say, oh, we have terrible memories, right? We don't remember things as they happened in the past. Um, and that's true. And that's good. That's not what our brains were built for. They were built for imagination. Uh, in fact, when you think when you look at what circuitry is active when you're remembering the past and what circuitry is active when you're imagining a possible future, it's the same. 
So the whole reason that we have an ability to draw from elements of the past is so that we can rearrange them into our brains into a possible future. It gets back to this, what is the brain for? It's to predict the future. Things aren't going to happen the same way in the past. And that's why like your current state, whether it's your emotion, um, you know, any, your current state is going to affect how you are able to imagine. And that's adaptive because that current state reflects how the future might look, right? Because that's the state you're in now, as opposed to when the thing was happening. So, yeah, so I think those two are, are, are very much, uh, tied to one another and, visualization works because essentially it harnesses that same ability. In fact, I think visualization is probably a better way of um, learning than remembering because when you're remembering, you're trying to do something your brain's not optimized for. Your brain really is optimized for visualization. And the reason that it works is because when we imagine, when we visualize something, again, the same areas of the brain are active as if we were doing that thing. Um, I mean, not in exactly the same way. I mean, we can certainly tell them apart on a, you know, scanner, but we see a ton of overlap. And so you can imagine that, um, if you're very careful about visualizing and imagining doing a particular task, you're essentially creating those, um, connections that, that network that you're going to need in order to do that task. And that, that's one of the reasons it's effective. But it's really important to do it well. And people think, well, I'm just not that good at it. And that's usually because they just haven't worked at it hard enough. You know, it's like you can get better at visualizing. There are actually, you know, tools that you can use to improve your ability to visualize, just like you can get better at meditating. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've heard, you know, a couple of people talk around, you know, that there's a few kind of key elements to it, a few key aspects. So one is... Um, you know, obviously the kind of, uh, I think the, the thinking, you know, the visualization, the thinking about it, but, but then attaching that to an emotion is, is very, very important. Um, I think there was one other, but can you kind of speak into that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, I can tell you why that's important. I mean, anything that gives you, I mean, what, you got to think about what emotions are, why do we have emotions? I mean, they just cause us pain a lot of the time, right? So mm. what's the point? Mm. Um, the point is so that we will remember, right? Because something significant happened if it caused us to feel either good or bad. And so we have this whole network that we share with rats, with, you know, a lot of other mammals where, um, when something is emotional, we pay attention and we remember it because, and that's, that's essentially emotions have, you know, two, I think, um, two roles. One is to show us what's important and therefore, you know, worth remembering and, and paying attention to, and two, communicating to others how this thing has affected us. Um, so, you know, that's, so, so one of the really powerful ways of, of driving learning is to create an emotion, right? Have people feel something, which is, I think, another reason why music is so effective is that it, it you know, is inherently emotional. Um, and so, you know, puts you in the state where your, your, your brain, your attention, you know, everything is more likely to get the information and hold on to it and then offer it up for you to use later. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this guy. There's an American guy named Jim Quick who, who kind of talk, talk, teaches about learning. He, he basically, but he's got this kind of statement which I took notice of, um, which is basically, you know, what you just said, which is like all learning is state-based. So, you know, it depends on the state that you're in. It depends on what you're actually going to learn or not. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I, I find that interesting, you know, because like I, I remember like as a young adolescent, like as a young teenager, 
my state wasn't great, you know, for a lot of different external ones and environmental reasons, you know. But I, I, did, I mean, I did terrible at school. And that's kind of interesting to think about it like that. Well, when you think about what it is that you were learning, your, pro your state was not optimized for book learning, right? It was no. probably optimized for social emotional learning or whatever it is that you picked up from that, that time. I mean, if you're in a state of high anxiety, your brain is not worrying about mathematics. Uh, it's, it's worrying about survival. It's worrying, you know, so you're paying attention to very different things. Um, I mean, that's one of the reasons I think why, like, you know, yeah, putting fear in a child is the worst way to try to get them to learn because now they're not going to learn because they're going to they're going to remember, you know, how you made them feel and the sort of details of the room. Like the example that I give is like in a master class setting, like if you're a classical musician and, you know, there's there's this tradition of master classes where you're, you know, put in front of an audience and you have to play your instrument and then the person that you probably revere more most in the world gives you criticism. <laughs> like yeah. that can be an awful experience if yeah. the whole time your your whole goal is to, you know, show that you're talented and that, you know, please this person and show them how awesome you are with a fixed mindset. Um, because what you're going to remember is that they criticized you and all you're going to remember is that you felt really embarrassed and bad and not like the the actual information that that person is giving you and so what would you say because so I'm, i think about my my son he's he's five and he and he he's probably a little bit different to me whereas you know when i was young i didn't seem to care too much about authority you know <laughs> but i think he's kind of the opposite where he you know he you can tell that if you you know if, if something happens and you know I act disappointed because of something he did you know he really takes that on board you know and I can see that and so you just kind of said something around you know if you if you induce fear into that potential learner that child then that you know so what is the answer then like what 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 are the tools you know that that teachers or parents should be using instead of that kind of fear-induced kind of idea, you know? Yeah, that's the million-dollar question. Like, if I knew, I'd be a much better mother, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, I think, I think ultimately, you know, I think there are a number of things. One, I think it's really important for kids to see that we also make mistakes. So I tend to apologize a lot to my son. And uh, I, ten I tend to, you know, say to him, like, you know, I, I made a mistake there and I'm sorry. And, um, you know, try to do better. Um, but also, I think praising kids for... Um, you know, trying for putting in the effort, uh, like the way the growth mindset, uh, you know, folk are, are really pushing, I, I do think it is very effective, you know, instead of telling them that, you know, there, there is a certain way that they are or are not. I mean, I think kids live in a world where they want it to be that way, like they want it to be that kind of black and white. Um, but teaching them that, you know, that, that, that's, that's not how the world is. And, and, you know, using a lot of words like, well, you can't do that yet. Um, you know, I think those can be very effective. Um, and also I think there is a certain, I mean, I think we just, we can't just praise them for everything because then they want, they need rewards for everything. Right. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, and that's really hard to do, but to sort of set expectations that this is just, this is what we do, whether it's chores or, or what have you, I think that that's, really important. Um, and, you know, I think oftentimes we, yeah, we tend to go overboard on the rewards and that basically teaches the child that anything that they do that doesn't have the reward somehow wasn't good or that they need the reward. Um, but I, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, I think it's a really hard question um, mm. because, you know, I think now we are really 
uh, aware of the many different ways that our reactions shape their behavior and their learning. Um, but I think, you know, I, I once had a conversation with Alison Gopnik, who's written a number of really great books, um, which I can recommend, like the, I think the scientist in the crib and, you know, how babies are, you know, kids are really born uh, curious. And as explorers, she wrote another one called the gardener and the carpenter. So, you know, there's one set of parenting where you like, mold a child into who you want them to be versus tending the garden when you can guess which which one is more effective ultimately um and she i know i had a conversation with her and you know i was like i'm a new mom and i don't know what i'm doing and she was like i'm not worrying about you at all because you care (laughs) you know i worry about the parents who are not asking those questions who don't care who neglect their children but you know it's like you can't love a child too much and you know if that's your biggest mistake you know, the child's going to be okay. Yeah. 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 Interesting. And, and I kind of want to change tact a little bit. Oh, I just want to ask a question because we were talking about emotions before. And in one of your talks, I I heard you draw an inference between emotions and dreams. Now, I I don't know what the studies are on that, but I found that really interesting. And I was like, I just have to ask that question. Like, what, what is, kind of uh the evidence there or what, what what's the kind of findings there yeah i mean there are a couple of interesting things um you know one is that when we are sleeping we do seem to replay important emotional moments in our day um and if we have and and usually when we do that in a dream state not always but that seems to be the, the case um and the reason we know this is because we can look at your brain activity when you were having an experience and then we see the same patterns sort of replaying during certain stages of sleep. Um, so we assume that that's the case, right? When we don't know, we, we can only, you know, can only guess. But, um, but usually those replays happen um, during a time when your neurotransmitters that are involved in a lot of your emotional, um, generating emotional feelings are at their lowest levels. And, um, and so that's good because you're not actually waking up from your dream and having this big emotional reaction, um, unless you have PTSD, in which case, um, you don't see that same, uh, attenuation of those neurotransmitters. And so one of the reasons people think that, um, you know, PTSD happens, post-traumatic stress disorder, which is essentially a replaying of emotional traumatic moments um, out, you know, with, without being able to stop them, uh, is in part because people keep being woken up as their brain is trying to do this therapeutic work of like yeah. working out those things. They're, they're woken up and now they're put into a, you know, again, like a, a state of, of heightened anxiety and then you don't want to sleep and so forth. So, you know, I think that all of that happens and and so so i think there's so there there's an, a study that i liked um that i i read about from my matt my friend um matt walker who uh, wrote a really great book called why we sleep everyone should buy it um anyway he uh he describes a study in which women who were recently divorced either dreamed about their divorce or not and the women that dreamed about their divorce seemed to have better outcomes they were able to kind of work through it uh as compared to those that didn't and so i think that there is something therapeutic about um sort of working through those issues if your brain is able to put you in that state Mm. and you know i suppose circling back to the music thing now because I think it might have been Ben Harper. It was someone that I used to listen to a lot. You know, it made a, a statement like music takes takes you to the height 
uh, of an emotion the quickest, basically. Yeah, you know, I mean, so that's, something like that. yeah, and I think actually that's one of the powerful things about music is that it allows you to feel these emotions quickly in a safe space, right? So anytime mm -hmm. you get overwhelmed, you can turn it off, right? But mm -hmm. you can process your emotions with feeling connected to someone else. I mean, it's essentially therapy, right? Where you're, you know, you're, you're, you're working through these emotions, you're, you're figuring them out, but it's not a, um, a threatening environment because you know that you have control over stopping those emotions. It's when it becomes out of your control that it actually can be really difficult and, and, and traumatic. And in fact, there are some people who can't listen to certain types of music because it puts them into an emotional state that they just don't feel in control over and they don't want to hear it anymore, you know? So, um, but yeah, I think it's a great way of kind of working through your feelings. It's very cool. And just got, you know, a couple of questions left because I, I'm aware that, you know, you, you do, you do have other things to do. <laughs> Um, so thank you again. Just uh, what 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 is getting you excited right now? You know, I, I'd like to kind of ask that question. Like, what, what gets you excited right now? Yeah. So after you know spending the requisite probably first two months of quarantine being super anxious and depressed, um, I actually am really excited now because I feel like at times like this when everything is disrupted, it's a great time for creativity. And so I'm excited about what, you know, what I will be able to work on next, how we will be rethinking so many aspects of our society, whether it's, you know, racial injustice or education or, you know, all kinds of different, um, even, even, you know, how we eat, <laughs> how we work out, you know, I'm really, I feel really excited about, you know, once this pandemic hopefully is behind us and people aren't dying, um, which is awful. Uh, I think that we will come out of it uh, better. And I think that that's one of the great, wonderful things about the human mind is that we can adapt when forced to but it's really easy we also we're lazy and we mm. like to stay in things that are comfortable and that are working for a long time so you know i see this in the arts industry i see this in the service industries like industries that have been fully disrupted i feel like are the ones that are going to come out you know after a difficult period being much much better and yeah. so I'm excited to see that. Um, I'm I'm excited to see what an what uh, interest has come into the role of music in our lives and how important it is and 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 yeah, how we can just essentially make our lives better. And what advice would you give to you know parents like me, like you? You know, if you speak to yourself, um, you know that that have children at our age and you know um, you know in the kind of you know five to 10 or, or even infants, you know, what advice would you sort of leave? What would be a couple, like a couple of bits of gold that you would say, you know, this is, um, you know, this is something that you should be implementing or considering, you know, at the very least. I mean, I think that, you know, if, if it comes to music, then I would say, you know, certainly follow your kids, like expose them to a lot of different types of music, a lot of different instruments, you know, encourage them to create music on their own, whatever that means, you know, whether it's on a computer or on a guitar or with their voice, whatever, um, and give them the tools to be able to do that and see, see that. Um, and I think there's a, there's a lot of great uh, tools out there now. Uh, it's, it's easy to make your own, you know, videos and, and, and create your own music. I mean, like never before have we been able to, uh, have such great high quality audio video, you know, things so quickly. Right. So, so I, I definitely would encourage parents to, you know, give their kids those options. Um, yeah. and then, you know, I, I also just think, 
to just remind yourselves that kids are really resilient. I mean, you know, we all think, oh, you know, they're going to spend a year or six months or whatever out of school and it's going to be terrible for them. I mean, I think we, the kids should go back to school as soon as possible. But <laughs> I also think that they're resilient and yeah. they will be fine. Who's yeah. not going to be fine are the parents if they're sitting there stressed and worried about it all the time. I mean, I think that yeah. that's, you know, it's important to, 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 to remind yourself of that, that ultimately your kids are going to be okay. Um, yeah. You know, you, you're the one who's having a harder time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. hundred percent, which, which in turn can affect the children. So, and, and that's why I can't, you know, this podcast is an interesting one for me because we're obviously at the very early stages, but you know, and, and it's important to have focus, you know, in terms of who this is for, but honestly, if you, if you can empower, a parent, then the child's life is inherently going to be better, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's what I think. And, you know, certainly, yeah, it certainly makes me a better parent when I go and work out my stuff <laughs> and I can come back and, t- you know, take a break and, but, you know, come back and, and, and have that patience. 100%. Okay. And so final question, and this is kind of a, this is a little experiment that I'm going to ask all of my guests. And so it's not, it's not a trick question. There's no wrong or right answer. But why is life wondrous for you? You know, why is it wondrous? Yeah, you know, to me, I think it's wondrous because we are able to introspect and, you know, pause and experience the fact that we are experiencing life. Uh, Sometimes I play this game with myself where I just think like, you are this person, you could have been almost anyone, but you know, you were born with this name and, you know, in this body and with this experience and like, that's unique to you. And it's just, that's, it's kind of mind blowing when you think about it. Um, so to me, that's wondrous is the fact that we actually have the ability to do that. Yeah. To be individuals, to be individuals and to be able to understand that we are individuals. Right. Like, I don't know, for me, one of the most amazing things about parenting was watching my child, both of them now realize that they are separate individuals, that they have a name, that they are, you know, it's like you just see their, the light bulb go off in their head, you know, and it leads to the terrible twos, but like, still like there's that moment when they're like, whoa, (laughs) and you know, for the rest of their lives, they're going to have, you know, they're going to be there with that identity and that that sense of self, um, which is going to change multiple times, but anyway. Yeah. I love that. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to ask you one quick question because you've just reminded me on that, you know, cause, cause I'm seeing it now. I'll leave that little girl. She's two. And I could tell, you know, months into her existence on planet earth, I could start seeing her, her personality, you know, months into it. And so for me, it's crazy to kind of go, wow, like we know that, environment obviously plays a factor but there's this whole other thing that it's just like that's them that's who they are that's how they were born like do you think about that or have you kind of looked at you know what what do you, what's your thoughts on that i mean for sh- for sure you know I, I i you know my friend uh likes to say that when you have your first child you become a developmental psychologist when you have your second child you become a social psychologist um because it is true that like all of a sudden you see you do that you think you're the same person and you think you've given them the same environment but they come out totally different um and the truth is, is that they have you know there are no two environments the same but um but, you know, yeah, I think that, that there is a lot to be said for, I mean, that by the time they 
are born, there are so many decisions that their DNA has made in terms of which genes are turned on, which genes are turned off, what what parts of the sperm and the egg can't, you know, they had, they got, so there's so many decisions. And then, and you also, when you think about it, like their brains when they're born are already, even, even though babies are pretty useless, their brains are already pretty functional and uh and so like in the first year of life their brains triple in size whereas for the rest of their lives they only increase another maybe 20 percent so the difference between a one-year-old and a 21 year old is like 20 percent the difference between a zero and a one-year-old is 80 (laughs) percent like wow so like so much is changing so rapidly uh, I mean, that's why, you know, things that that's why it's like really important to make sure they get the right nutrition and all that because things can go wrong real fast. But um, but yeah, you know, it's like they, they yeah, they, they come in with these strong personality traits. And, uh, and it's it's true. Like that's that's kind of what makes you realize that as parents, we just don't have that much control. Like we think we do. We think every decision matters. It doesn't. <laughs> yeah it's good i mean it's kind of you know there's, there's something kind of liberating about that as well you know yeah very cool very cool well thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it um and you know thoughts are going out for all of you guys uh over in the states at the moment and you know hoping that you guys can get out of uh lockdown you know sometime soon yeah probably not but well <laughs> Hopefully, hopefully people will start wearing masks and behaving more uh, res- responsibly yeah. and fewer people will die. But yes, thank you yeah, so much absolutely. for having me. <laughs> Thanks, Pat. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks for being a part of it. We'll talk to you again soon. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. So thanks for joining us for the very first episode of the Life is Wondrous podcast. Uh, Apologies, we went a little bit over time. There was way too many questions that I wanted to ask Indre while I had her on the line. Uh, Apologies for the the slight audio delay. That was the Pacific Ocean getting in between us. So stay tuned. Um, We've got some amazing guests in the upcoming episodes that are going to be, you know, hitting us up with all kinds of um, awesome insights. Uh, Hit subscribe and until next time.